So let's go today to Romans chapter 5. If you would find that in your Bible. We will read Romans 5, 1 through 5. And hear now the word of God, brothers and sisters. Hear it with tender hearts and with open ears. Hear it with prayer in your heart. Hear it with joy in your heart if you're one of Christ's. Because these are his comforting words to us. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. By whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. We're talking about the results of justification. We're talking about this great theological truth called justification. Where we come as lost, wretched Vile, undone sinners, all of us, the whole human race. This is what we are by nature. We love sin and not our maker. We love darkness and not light. This is our natural state. This is the state we're born into. This is all the human race. But we hear the gospel. Someone preaches the gospel to us. Some loved one shares the gospel with us. And the Holy Spirit works through that witness and And the Holy Spirit does a miracle in our heart. We believe that gospel. He gives us eyes to see that we thought we were good people, but we realize now I'm not good. There's none good but one, and that is God. We realize the wretchedness of our condition, and we see the ugliness of our sin, and we see the beauty of Jesus dying in our place and rising again, and we believe on him. And when we believe the gospel, God, the judge, declares in his courtroom that we now have a new legal standing. We are now considered righteous in Christ. That is what we mean, and that's what the apostle means when he says justified. He means God declares this believing sinner righteous, and case is dismissed, and the charges are thrown out, and we go now clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, and beloved, that changes everything. Now, what are the results of that? That's what this passage is about. We know that by, therefore, verse 1, in light of Jesus delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification, Romans 4.25, what is the result or what are the results? And he says the first one is we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The old dispute, the old enmity, the old hostility is gone. Before we're saved, we're at war with God, and God in His holiness is at war with us. Here's the issue really simplified. 
The old dispute is about sin. We like sin, and God don't like sin. That's about as simple as you can say it, isn't it? In our natural state, we really like our sin. We have a, uh, several that we really like. We really pursue them and think about them our whole lives, day and night. We eat, sleep, drink, dream, our, our sin, our sinful choice, the sin of our choosing. And as we love it and our hearts goes out to it, God in His holiness detests it. And therefore, there is hostility between a sinner and his maker. The sinner hates the God who would dare impose his will upon us. And God, his wrath is abiding upon that sinner every day, as long as that sinner is outside of Christ. But when we believe on the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, when we believe on the Son of God who died for us and rose, the war is over. The old quarrel ends. The hatchet's buried, so to speak. The feud is over. The old, ancient, long-time, long-running battle is now over, and we know the sweetness of being brought back to God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Second result of justification is we now stand in grace. We called it last time, and this is part two, grace ground and coming glory. And that's where we're going to get to. But the second result is we stand in grace. In the book of Esther, there was a plot afoot to exterminate the Jews. Uh, there's always been a great anti-Semitic sentiment in the world. And Satan is behind that. Uh, God chooses Abraham and he says, I will bless Abraham and I will bless all those who bless Abraham. And I will curse all those who curse Abraham and his descendants. We love the Jewish people. It was a Jewish woman that gave us the Messiah, the Virgin Mary. It was the Jewish prophets that gave us the scriptures. We owe a great deal to the descendants of Abraham. And we bless God for his work through a despised little people. He says, I didn't choose them because they were many. And I didn't choose them because they were impressive. I chose them because I loved them. I set my love upon an unlikely people. Someone said, how odd of God to choose the Jews. Because they had no reason for him to. They weren't impressive, strong, populous. But God would demonstrate his glory through a weak people. A despised people, a little people. And God is still doing that same thing, by the way, today. How odd of God to choose you and me as well. And yet that's what he does. He chooses the weak the lowly, the base, the nothings of this world to put to shame the proud, the rich, and the mighty. And so here we are, recipients of his grace. And so there was a foot, a plot afoot that they were going to exterminate the Jewish people. And Mordecai says, Esther, my sweet girl, go into the king and tell them about wicked Haman and about his plot to destroy us and if you don't do something, don't you think you're going to be spared either? It will be found out that you're a Jew, and King Ahasuerus will cause you and me and all of our people to be destroyed. And Esther said, Uncle, I can't just go into the king, because here's the law, and you know it well. If I barge into the king's court without being invited, he will kill me. The only exception will be if he holds out a golden scepter to me. If he holds out the golden scepter, it is as if to say, 
Don't you worry. You come on in. You're not going to die. And Esther says, have everybody pray and fast. And I will go into the king. And if I die, I die. And Mordecai says, it may be that you have been raised up for such a time as this. And so Esther goes in. The king Ahasuerus and Ahasuerus the king holds out the golden scepter. And he welcomes Esther to come. And many commentators have seen it. It's such a beautiful picture. There is the gospel, beloved. The gospel of the king's son is the golden scepter that's held out. We come to the king. We come in the name of his son, Jesus. And he summons us to come. He doesn't kill us. He doesn't cast us away. He says, you who believe on my son, you may come right into my holy of holies. You are welcome. You have access to come. And this is what we're looking at in Romans 5 too. We have the golden scepter of grace extended to us in Christ. We have access, we have privileged approach, that's what it means, to come to someone of great power. How many of you could today, could today go home and pick out your smartphone and call the President of the United States? You'd find he's pretty inaccessible. You'd find your phone call is not going to go through. He's hard to reach. You can't just, not just, nobody can just get right through and find access and talk to him. Let me tell you, multiply that in an infinite, no, infinite number of times, and that is how inaccessible God is to a lost sinner. There's nothing in common. There's no line. There are many impediments between a sinner and God. But through the Lord Jesus Christ, we have a mediator. Through Him, through His finished work, we can come with privileged approach to someone of great power. We can come not to a president. We can come to the creator of the universe, and we can come and we can say, Abba, Father, dear Father, and we can see his extended hand with a golden scepter in it saying, yes, my daughter, yes, my son, come on in. This is the standing that we have in Christ. We stand in grace. We have boldness to enter into the holiest, Hebrews 10 says. Ephesians 2 says, through Jesus, we, have, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access. And there's our word, Ephesians 2.18. Through Jesus, both Jew and Gentile have access by one Spirit to the Father. And do you see there the Trinitarian beauty? Through Jesus, God's Son, Jew and Gentile come to the Father through the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 2.18. So what a standing is ours. What a place we stand in. What a privilege. Amen. What a privilege the Christian enjoys. The favor of God is upon his blood-bought people. We're not trying to impress God with our production. We're pumping it out, always producing, working, Because the harder we work and the more we work, maybe God will notice us. Maybe God will be impressed. Maybe God will say, oh, I see one there that's really trying real hard. I'm going to show them kindness. Beloved, that's not the gospel. That's moralism or legalism or something. The gospel is not God's looking for someone who's really trying hard. He's going to show them grace. 
There are no such people, after all, that really try hard to please God. We're trying hard to get away from God, the fact is. But even a moral man who thinks himself or herself good, when measured by God's standard of holiness, is really just a self-righteous kind of good, a self-glory kind of good. Nothing a sinner ever does is for the glory of God, even when they do philanthropic or benevolent works. It's not for the glory of Jesus Christ. It's so that, well, it's for something else. We'll leave God to judge all the motives. Now, the gospel says this sinner who is wretched and deserves justice, deserves to be crushed, deserves to be cast into hell, they have believed on my son. They have believed on Jesus And God the Father allows all of his favor now to flow unhindered for the good of, for the love and benefit and protection and glorification eventually of that sinner. We stand in grace, brother or sister. We stand in grace. We have access into grace ground. This is our standing. It's a permanent stand. We don't get probation, we get salvation. It's permanent and not temporal. There's no place to stand unless you're standing in grace. If he marks iniquities, who can stand? Psalm 130, verse 3. When his wrath is revealed, who can stand? Revelation 6 says. Psalm 15 says, The ungodly shall not stand in the judgment. When God begins to judge, there's no place to stand. But here we are, because of Jesus, we stand in grace. God's favor is upon his people. Third result of justification, and now we get to the new part of the verse we haven't covered yet. Verse 2, right at the end. We stand in grace and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So we, while we stand here in grace, we look down the road just a little ways, just out across the horizon. We see what's coming. You know what's coming? Glory is coming. The very glory of God is coming, and we're going to take that. We're going to partake of that. We're going to taste that. We're going to see God in his glory. That's one thing it means. What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall... See God. The old writers referred to this as, this is not a word we use anymore, but they referred to it as the beatific vision. The most blessed thing you could ever see. The most beautiful and blessed sight that could ever come into your eyes is to see the one who is altogether beautiful. To see God. And when it says we're rejoicing in hope of or anticipating the glory of God, it means we're going to be swept into his presence and we're going to look upon something we've never seen before, the very glory and beauty of God. And we'll have to have a glorified body to see the glory of God. Because even now, Jesus said, or God said to Moses, when Moses said, Lord, show me your glory, God says, no man can see me and and live. His glory would be so overpowering, so overwhelming, it would 
Just destroy us, little creatures of dust and dirt. We will need a glorified body just to take in the sight of this thrice holy, eternal, glorious God. So we rejoice. Now here's the thing. We say, oh, that terrifies me to think about seeing such a one. It would me too if it was not for grace. We stand in grace and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So we who have been made recipients of grace because Jesus died and rose again and he died as my substitute and he rose again as the mighty Lord of his people and he ascended back to the Father where he prays for us at the Father's right hand. We who have been given this privileged position of grace, we can look forward without fear. I had a man tell me one time, he said, I I can't read the book of Revelation. I said, what do you mean you can't read the book of Revelation? He said, Revelation just scares me so much. There's beasts and there's all this going on. It's just a fearful thing. And I said, I understand what you're saying now. I understand what you mean. But Jesus uh, said there at the beginning of that book in Revelation 1-3, blessed is he who reads this book. Uh, Don't avoid it. Read it and understand what the message of it is. It's not about this beast and that antichrist and this It's about Jesus coming to get his people who've been suffering for long enough. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the appearing of Jesus when he comes to gather his beloved ones and throw Satan into the bottomless pit. Don't be afraid of revelation. Rejoice in what it's saying to us. So when you think of one day being swept up into the presence of the one who made all the stars and who numbers them and names them and the uncreated creator Realize, if it were not for the grace of Jesus, you couldn't stand there either, nor could I. But because of grace, we now rejoice. We look forward to that beatific vision, to that most blessed of all sights, seeing the glory and beauty and excellence and perfections and breathtaking, awesome majesty of our God. So we're going to see his glory. We're going to be with him. But it also has to do with what's going to happen to us. We have been called to partake of a a glory that God will give us. We're not going to become God. No way. The Mormons have it wrong. And many, many religions get it wrong. They think that somehow we're going to be an angel when we die. We're going to be somehow a God or like God in such a way that No, we'll always be a creature, always. But God is going to confer upon his redeemed a kind of glory that the redeemed are called to. Let's look at some scriptures so you'll know I'm not just making that up. Romans 8, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And now Romans 8, 29 says that, Romans 8, 29, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. And he speaks of it there in the past tense, like it's already done. Those he foreknew back in eternity, he determined they would be like Jesus. He called them in power so that they came. 
He justified them, and that's what we're talking about. He declared them righteous. And what comes as a result of justification? Glorification. We are going to be glorified one day. You say, oh, I feel so little now. I feel so weak. I'm not sure sometimes if I can make it all the way home. I stumble around and wander around. I feel like the children of Israel again. They went in circles for 40 years when it should have taken them about 11 days to get to the promised land. They came out of Egypt. should have been an 11-day journey. It took them 40 years, and they died and didn't make it because of unbelief. And it was their children who went in. You say, I wander around so much. I'm such a bumbler. I feel ashamed to even call myself a disciple of Christ many times because I'm so double-minded, so easily led astray, so quick to think the vile thought, the hateful thought, the angry thought, the selfish plan. Am I a disciple? Will I make it home? Is there hope for even such a one as me? Beloved, here's the beautiful truth. Jesus is our righteousness. Jesus brings us into a right relationship. And Jesus is going to get us all the way home. And our destiny is glory. We're going to be glorified. Grace always leads to glory. Those who have by grace been justified, you can be double sure. These are the ones that will see the glory of God, and will be glorified. Grace is the earnest of glory. It's the token payment. It's grace is glory already begun. Grace is glory in, in germ. Grace that we have received. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me and you. This will lead to glory. Second Corinthians 3.18 says that we look as it were in a glass and we behold the glory of the Lord and we're changed into the same image from glory to glory. So he's moving us along to conformity to Christ. We're growing. If you're not growing, you may not be a Christian. Are you growing? Are you walking? Are you learning? Are you understanding the truth of God changing your heart and mind and your attitudes? This is what he does with his people. He declares us righteous in justification, and he actually begins the work of making us more and more righteous in sanctification. So we are being changed from glory to glory as we behold his glory, 2 Corinthians 3.18. Colossians 3.4 says, when Christ who is our life shall appear, then shall we appear with him in glory. When he comes and gets us, he's going to change us so that we're, we're like him. We shall see him as he is. Then shall we appear with him in glory. Colossians 3, 4. He's bringing many sons to glory. We sang it while ago in the hymn. And it's the words of Hebrews 2.10. He's the captain of our salvation. And he is bringing many sons to glory. Peter says in 1 Peter 5.10, The God of all grace who hath called us to his eternal glory. He has called us to his eternal glory. We're going to see his glory. We're going to share in the victory of Jesus, our great 
king, the great head of the church. We're going to be glorified in our being, a glorified body, a glorified mind, a glorified voice, a glorified affections. No more will sin cling to us. No more will we know the size of this life and the pain of this life. We will know nothing but eternal bliss and eternal glory because of Jesus our Lord. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Our light afflictions, which are but for a moment, work for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, Romans 8, 18. So now we have afflictions, and they're relatively light, and they're temporary, and they are going to lead to glory. That's not light, and it's not temporary. It's weighty, and it's permanent. Amen. When Paul, or when Paul describes the glorified body of the believers, he says it's like a seed you put in the ground. That which comes up is not what you put in the ground. Somehow a miracle takes place as it's buried. You plant this little seed, this grain, and it comes up different. Although it's the same kind of thing, the nature is the same, but a miracle happens. And Paul says, so it is in the resurrection. We plant these bodies of our believers, our beloved brothers and sisters, we put them in the ground. And it's sown in dishonor, and it's raised in glory. 1 Corinthians 15, 43. Sown in dishonor, sown in weakness, raised in power. Sown in dishonor, raised in glory. What a miracle will it be one day when God raises His people in glory, to glory. What will it be? The last we saw some of our loved ones, they were withered, frail, bent, stooped, wrinkled, sick, emaciated, diseased, maimed perhaps. Maybe they were in such a shape we couldn't even open the, a casket and look. We said, no, it's not proper. We'll, we'll have a closed casket service. Because something had happened that was so detrimental to their shell of a body. The next time we see them, they were sown in dishonor. They're going to be raised in glory. We're going to say, is that an angel? No, that's brother so-and-so. I was almost to see their, their beauty and their radiance was such that I didn't recognize you to start with, but I see you now, brother. Hey, oh, my, what a, what a God we have. We look forward to it, beloved. Here's what. We could paraphrase verse 2. We could paraphrase this phrase and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We could say it like this. We joyfully look forward to all that God has prepared for His people. We joyfully look forward to all that God has prepared for His people. We rejoice in hope. Don't let that word throw you. We use the word hope a a lot differently than the Bible uses it. We say, I hope it finally rains, it's getting dry. Or we say, I, I hope that my team gets a better coach for next year. Or I hope this or I hope that. It is uncertainty and we, we're just kind of hoping maybe something will turn and it'll work out. In the scriptures, almost every time this word is used, it means 
a divine certainty that we are eagerly anticipating. It's not uncertain at all. It's certain. It's certitude. We're just waiting on God's timing to bring it to pass. This is what the word hope means. We rejoice in hope, in eager anticipation for all that God has planned for us, his little flock. He takes us a backward people, an unworthy people. So unworthy are we. And he confers upon us his own name. He says, you are mine. I will give you my name. When an earthly father or mother decides to adopt a child, they prepare, they spend much time and and financial expense to make this happen. And when they take this child into their family, they have showed this child great favor, great grace. And because that grace embraced them, that little child now will one day have part of the inheritance. This is what this passage is talking about. We're brought in by grace. We're made one of his. And therefore, we're going to receive his inheritance marked out for his people. We rejoice, anticipating with great joy those promises that God has made that cannot fail, that will happen just in his time. They're just on the horizon, and it is for them that we rejoice. So many other scriptures we could show you about the glory of God. And now, let's close. Coming to the Lord's table. Look at it. As it's exemplified in the Lord Jesus. Look at him on the cross. Look at him before the cross. Scourged. Bloodied. Isaiah said his countenance. His visage. Was marred more than any man. And his form more than the sons of men. To look at him. You'd have to look hard to see. Is this a man? What what has happened here? His body was so abused. He was so shamefully, wickedly treated. And then just a little while later, look at him. Glorified. Appearing to the disciples. And then they watch him go up in a cloud. And the angel said, he's coming back just like that too. So here we are as Christians tossed about in this world, experiencing all kind of trouble, some of it of our own doing, some of it owing to our own stubbornness, some of it owing to just a a world system that is out of order, tossed to and fro, suffering, rejected, shamed, made fun of, made light of. One day we will judge angels. This is what Paul said. One day we will share in the victory of Jesus. We will demonstrate to the principalities and powers the very wisdom of God as he makes us one of his trophies. This is the destiny of a Christian. Not the destiny of all people. The destiny of the blood-bought, the redeemed man or woman, of which we are by grace and grace alone counted 
in that number. And all God's people said, amen, amen. And we wait now with tiptoes, looking, just craning our neck, looking at the horizon, waiting for the glory of God. We will be perfected. We will be finally saved in that final phase called glorification. Glory be to our God. All glory to Jesus Christ, our Lord. And now, Father, what joy it is. What joy it is. In the midst of the tears that flow down our cheeks, in the midst of the sadness that we often feel that's right before us, every moment, morning, every moment, perhaps we feel a loneliness, a sadness, and something's just not right. And we realize we're not made to be apart from you very long. We're yours. We're not going to be fixed until we are with you. Until then, we groan in this body. We desire to be clothed with another body. We desire to be not away from you any longer. But Lord, in the interim, in the meantime, we still rejoice. Knowing what is coming for the recipients of grace. For those who have been justified. For those who are no longer at war with you. And who stand on grace ground. We shall one day stand on glory ground. (laughs) What a day that will be. And right now we take the reminders of the covenant. The bread. And the cup. And we remember this new and better covenant. Ratified by a better sacrifice than a lamb. Mediated by a better priest than Aaron. Giving better benefits than annual atonement. Giving eternal redemption. Mediated not upon an earthly altar, but upon the cross. And now, as the great high priest, mediating for us at the very right hand of the Father. Better promises. This is the new covenant wherein we stand. And Father, we thank you this day for the bloody cross of the Lord Jesus and for the empty tomb. And we come now and take these elements, these symbols, these visual reminders. We've heard your word today. We've read it. We have tried to preach it. We have sang portions of it. We have prayed your word and taken your word and turned it around and prayed it back to you, and now we will visually observe your word acted out in this wonderful ordinance called the Lord's Supper. It is upon a table, not an altar. The last altar was the cross, and now we come to a family meal where the family of God comes around a table and where we partake in faith of the merit and work of Jesus for the poor, wretched sinner that we were by nature, but now the grateful, redeemed son and daughter we are by grace. And all glory is yours. Blessed Father, Son, and Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.